and welcome to the Living With Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Simone Denny, and I'm here to uncover how we find more joy, greater fulfillment, and deeper purpose in our lives. I will be sharing my own journey, as well as insights from thought leaders and everyday people who are living with purpose and have created a life they truly love. Hello and welcome back to today's podcast. Thank you so much for being here. It's just so lovely to know that there are people listening all over the world to this podcast. And thank you to those who wrote in after our wonderful conversation with Louise Laffey last week. Um, Just to share with me some of the little insights and magic moments you had after listening to that. And it's really lovely for me to know that, you know, Meg in Kenya was listening to this podcast or Kath was listening to it on her long drives and had some aha moments. That really inspires me to keep sharing this, um, these wonderful people with you in these um, insightful conversations. Today, I'm really excited on the topic of the brain that we're going to speak about with um, the very insightful is probably the (laughs) the word to use again, the insightful Sarah Mackay, Dr. Sarah Mackay, who's a neuroscientist. And for me personally, I've dedicated you know, much of my life in looking at the brain and learning about the brain. So having an opportunity to spend, you know, an hour or so with a neuroscientist and pick her brain was just such a treat for me. But what's coming up for me as a really common theme, and it's kind of dropped in again after my conversation with Sarah, is this really um, innate human need for connection. And even in our last podcast, when we talked to Louise Laffey, we spoke about the importance of connecting to the self and connecting to our feelings. And then, you know, on the next level, connecting to something higher. But what um, research is showing, and Sarah will share more on this, is that our brain is designed to be social. Our brain needs to connect to other people's brains to, to feel Um, to feel well. So our mental and physical wellness is very much linked to this human need to feel connected to others. And if we look at things like loneliness, um, it's a really painful emotional experience to go through. But what, what research is also finding is that it has a really big mental and physical impact to be lonely and to feel isolated and not to feel connected to others. So feeling lonely actually creates a stress hormone in our body and that releases cortisol and it causes inflammation. And then it causes a whole lot of um, other diseases in our body. And if anyone's seen the series on The Curious Mind, they're actually saying that loneliness can, can kill us. We actually live um, for a shorter amount of time if we don't have this um, innate need to, to connect and feel connected. So I really encourage you just to ask yourself each day, how can I connect more? How can I connect with others more? And, you know, that is not really 
going onto social media and scrolling through other people's lives or feeling this kind of false sense of connectedness that we do when we're on looking at people's lives on Instagram or Facebook. Those apps are designed to make us feel connected. But I'm talking about face-to-face connection or conversations on the phone or working together with teammates or having a dinner or a lunch with a friend. These are so important for our, um, for our happiness. And, you know, you know, there's so many reasons why we, we need to, to connect to ourselves and to others. And I won't speak any more on that because, um, you know, Sarah really is an expert in terms of how that affects the brain. So if you're curious about how to optimize your brain or you've ever wondered about how your mental and physical well-being are, are, are whether they're a result of nature or nurture, or if you've ever pondered on how the woman's brain works, and that's probably a question for both men and women, then you're going to love this chat with Dr. Sarah Mackay. She's an influential brain health commentator. She's a neuroscientist, a TEDx speaker, and she specializes in translating brain science research into simple strategies for peak performance, creativity, mental health, and well-being. She's the author of The Woman's Brain, which is her beautiful new book. And she, in this book, she tracks the lifespan of a woman to look at how our minds and brains are shaped and sculptured by our genes and hormones and life experience, society, culture, and our thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. So what Sarah talks about is how so much of what we express is based on our history and what we've experienced in our lifetime. So she really is an authority in, on neuroscience and brain health. She has been quoted and she's been in publications such as Wall Street Journal to Morning, the Sydney Morning Herald. Um, I know she's been, you may have seen her on Australian or New Zealand TV and radio. She is just a very wise woman with a very healthy brain. So in our podcast today, we are going to discuss the fascinating topic of the brain and she's going to share what shapes our brain. Um, our fundamental need for connection, which I mentioned, the woman's brain, how women and men are socialized to be different, the surprising research around PMS. And I'm really looking forward to, for you to listen to that part because it's very interesting for me. Why our expectations of our health are so important. Why purpose is the key to happiness. I love that part. And the importance of napping and so much more. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sarah Mackay. So Sarah, firstly, I'd like to welcome you to today's show. I've been loving following your work and seeing what you've been putting out into the world. And I, you are what I would call a real thought leader in your field. And you're also someone who's really living your purpose. So thank you for sharing your wisdom um, with our listeners today. Oh, thank you. They're, they're very kind words. It's nice, nice to hear someone describe me that way. Oh, well, very true. So 
What really strikes me about you is that you have had a lifetime fascination with the brain. Mm. And I, I love the passion that you speak about the brain with. So mm. how, did your, um, how did your journey from becoming a neuro, to become a neuroscientist unfold? And maybe you could just explain what a neuroscientist is. Yeah. Well, I mean, neuroscience is, is, a, is a science like any other, which is really the study of, of, of the brain and nervous system. And it encompasses everything from looking at perhaps the molecular or, or, or genetic makeup of neurons and how they develop all the way through to you know psychiatry and, and drug treatments and, and, and everything in between. So it's a, it's, re, it's a very broad and deep subject. But I was, I was one of those kids that always had their head stuck in a book and loved reading anything. And I, one of my favorite things to read, but I always kind of felt like I had to do it in secret. I'm not sure why, was I used to love reading, like, um, my parents had a first aid manual. <laughs> <laughs> and I also had a, an aunt and also a grandmother who were nurses and I used to like go and read their nursing textbooks and just, oh, it's just, so I always loved anything kind of health, science, medical related um, and was always on some type of health, science, medical track. When I was at my first year at university, um, a psychology lecturer said, you've got to read, recommended everyone read this book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which some people may have heard of, by a neurologist called Oliver Sacks. And um, I just, the stories in that just absolutely gripped me because they were really about what happens when the brain malfunctions or goes wrong and all of the kinds of weird and wonderful behaviours and thoughts and, and feelings that can emerge out of a, a brain. And um, it's just, I was so captivated that I then switched my major over to neuroscience. And um, so I was, that was in 93, <laughs> 1993. And, you know, I, that's really, I've just followed that, that path since. And I think because it's such an incredibly broad and diverse and deep subject that there's just always something new to learn. And, and you know, this, one of my strengths is, is, is a real love of learning, you know, from when I had my books stuck in the book as a kid so it just means that I'm always learning something new and finding out something new um, and really in terms of the career progression so I followed a pretty typical academic career path although I was incredibly fortunate with one I won a scholarship to Oxford University and was there for four years doing my PhD um, but I missed the further down the academic path I got being an undergraduate because when you're an undergraduate you get to study a little bit of everything. And when the further along your career path you go and research most things, the narrower and narrower it gets. And, and, and you can joke that, you know, you become an expert in almost nothing because you're looking at one particular protein or a little pathway or a specific problem. And, and it almost, you have to kind of do that. You have to almost become siloed and do it and, you know, forget about everything else to focus. And I miss the, the, the kind of the, the variety that came from undergrad life. Mm. So really, I think that's one reason why I shifted from academic research into science communications, because it meant I got to just look at all of the things again, mm. really. And, and so I, I, I decided after a lot of soul searching at the end of my, about to begin my third postdoc fellowship which is the kind of the research jobs you get after you do a PhD um, I decided that I would pursue a career in, in science communications sort of taking the research in the lab into people's lives instead of 
beavering away in the lab. Mm. Yeah, and that's very clearly your gift is to translate really complicated kind of scientific principles and make them really simple for people, which yeah. which is, yeah. is not an easy thing to do and then to be able to communicate it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a gift. I've really, it's a skill I've honed. Yeah. <laughs> Growth mindset stuff. I've, I, and I, I love that and... And I think by doing that, it means I get to kind of wallow in the things that I like doing the most. It really is almost by building a career around that, it means I get to just do what I like the most, which is mm. learn the new stuff. Yes. <laughs> and, 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 and so I've, you know, I've, I've worked really hard over the years and, and spent as much time perhaps thinking about the content and thinking about the science itself as thinking about how can this be taught to other people or what can we do with this information. So I've spent as much time learning about how to communicate science as the actual content itself. I think so there's, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of um, kind of, you know, learning that's gone in there too. Yes. Yeah. And I guess we, we're going to talk more about the Neuroscience Academy, but that's probably a perfect example of how you translate a lot of this work for, for other people mm. to understand. Yeah. So um, you've spent much of your life studying the brain and learning about, about the brain. Mm. What's um, one of the most surprising things that you've learned about the brain? Oh, far out. The most surprising <laughs> things. I, well, I mean, I suppose if I, you know, and, and this is a story I often tell when I'm thinking about m my book, because I wrote a book, I'm sure we'll talk about that. People say, what's the most surprising thing about my book? And, and, and coming out of the, the thing that came out of that, and also very similar that came out of my PhD, was I went in with a very um, fixed, not fixed idea, but a hypothesis that, uh, that what impacted the brain was biological, was all about the body. So going into my PhD, I was, I was interested in how neurons in the brain wire up during development and how synaptic partners are kind of formed. How does one brain cell decide to connect with another brain cell? And what drives that? Is it very early in development? It's, it's got to be all genetic, right? Before the baby's born or an animal's born. It's, it's, it's nature that determines that. But after that, is it, is it nature or is it nurture? That whole question, nature versus nurture, is it, is it the environment we grow in and the experiences we have and the thoughts and feelings that emerge from the brain or is it all, all biological? And when I went into my PhD, I was looking at very earliest stages of brain development post-birth. And it was like, well, is it nature or is it nurture that determines what happens to the wiring patterns in that point in time? And it, and it turned out after three years of slug, slugging away in the lab, it was Bit of both mm. so sort of the foundation set by biology and then the experiences of life kind of refine them and shape them which perhaps doesn't seem like much of a surprise but certainly 20 years ago when I was working on that problem we didn't know the answer mm. um, and similarly when I was writing my book I was again it was it was looking at you know, the lifespan from womb, I say from womb to tomb, so from prenatal life and utero life all the way through to the end of life, what shapes the brain? You know, what shapes who we are? Is it nature or is it nurture? Or And of course, it turned out it was a bit of both. And almost when we look at humans, our, we are so complicated and our brains evolved to move us through the world and perceive the world and interact with the world. 
And our biology is one part of that. But the surprise to me was how massively influential from the moment we're born our life experiences are. And it's not, you know, what you eat, for example. It's, you know, who you meet. It's the people around you. Mm. Um, the pe- you know, what's, what is, um, what's that, that Māori term? Hatangata, hatangata, hatangata. The people, the people, the people. That, to me, is almost what is most important about the brain. And the, most, and the biggest surprise to me, what's most important to each of us will be the people in our lives and who we meet. And, you know, that is also what's really most important to our brain. And I think mm-hmm. for me, well, it's not a surprise. It's kind of a, 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 a learning. And I think it's perhaps not understood. We don't really understand it that well yet from a neural perspective. But I think that our brains have evolved to connect with other people. It's not all biology, I suppose. No. It's what's out there that, that our brains connect with that, that determine our health. Yes, and there is a lot more research about the importance of connection for our brain health, for our mental health. And yeah, yeah. And it's just it's such a fundamental need. Mm. That and sleep, yes. <laughs> I think, that's so fundamental. And, and, and so that's perhaps, I guess... I'm really always really interested whenever I learn anything new along those lines, whether we're talking about depression, whether we're talking about, you know, unhealthy aging, whether we're talking about, um, you know, childhood development um, from, from, from a social perspective and from a neuron perspective, Mm. that's what's, that's, that's a really powerful influence. Yeah, and you look at the places in the world where people are living the longest and they say, you know, a core part of that is that connection and community, which is yeah, obviously absolutely. Yep. impacting absolutely. our brain and our, and our mental mm. health. Yep. So let's talk about this beautiful book that you've written and <laughs> yes. it's called The Woman's <laughs> Brain. Yes, I love it. It's called it. This in Australia and New Zealand. Just a minute, I'll show you. But if you live in um, Europe... It's called this. Demystifying the female brain. Okay. I love it. Team pink or team blue. <laughs> okay. I'm gonna put I'm gonna put the photos in our show notes as well so that you can see see the different titles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In Australia, New Zealand and um in Kindle versions around most of the world, it's the women's brain book. Well it's mm-hmm. not pink, it's meant to be social justice purple. The colour of suffrage. <laughs> suffrage. I love it. And celebrating, it's celebrating that in New Zealand at the moment. I was we? just going to say it's Women's Suffrage yeah. Week this week, so it's perfect it that we talk about the woman's brain. Um, yeah. So what called you to write this book, Sarah? Well, actually, my publisher called me on the phone to write the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we were talking before with the, 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 we started recording, you know, do you have a book in you or not? And, 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 and I didn't really. Um, I, I was called by a publisher who said, you, you know, why, why don't you write a book? And I was like, oh, because I don't have any good ideas and it sounds like a lot of hard work. And we, we, had a, we sat and had a chat. This woman then became my agent, you know, Jeanne Ricklins, and wouldn't have happened without her. But she, we sat over coffee and she asked me really, um, she asked me two questions. One was, because um, I had been writing about brain science for a number of years by this point, and, um, and she said to me, oh, what have you ever written for an audience that's resonated with them? Like, if you were to think of a book idea, what's resonated with an audience? And I went, oh, that's easy. I wrote an article for the ABC here in Sydney, Australia, a few years ago on menopause and brain fog. 
and this idea that lots of women when they're going through perimenopause hormones are all over the place and it can make you you know you can get insomnia and you can get hot flashes and it can all kind of compound and you end up very forgetful and fuzzy and what we call brain fog colloquially colloquially it's called brain fog and lots of women think that that is the first sign of dementia or Alzheimer's disease and so there's a lot of fear around that and and so I wrote an article kind of unpacking this idea of brain fog being quite normal and what was it due to and that it's not necessarily the first sign of Alzheimer's and we had this huge response from so many women just saying oh thank god <laughs> I thought it was just me I was so worried and so so my agent said, well, there's a book on that. And then she, and so I said, oh, yeah, menopause. I could write a book about menopause. I'm only 41, or well, maybe I could. Um, and then she said, oh, well, what about baby brain? Is that, is that a real thing? And um, another kind of colloquial term for feeling a bit forgetful when you're pregnant. And I, and I my immediate reaction was, oh, I thought that was a load of rubbish. because I never suffered from it. Um, but that's anecdotal. Um, and then I went, oh. Yeah, well, I never really thought about that either. And then I had this one, you know, a light bulb moment of one of these pivotal light bulb moments of my life. I'm sure looking back on it, when I realised that there were just all of these questions about um, women's health and female biology that could be examined through the through the lens of neuroscience, and I had never thought about them before. And and so was almost within 10 minutes a chapter outline for the entire book was written which is not normal I've been told um and, and it was and essentially it was just me coming up with lists of questions that I wanted to know the answers to and the really logical way to think about this was if, to look at, at, at the women's or the female lifespan because at each point in life you really have to take into account what's happened to you up to that point so even if we were to look at something like menopause and brain fog, yes, that's an influence in part by hormones, but it's also influenced by your previous experiences and mental health problems, by your physical health, by your social support networks, and all of those depend on what's happened to you previously to get you to that point in life. So at every stage in life, you're kind of carrying through, you know, your, your life history is woven into your biology. Mm. So I, I just knew the book had to be a, a, a lifespan look. And also that made it easier to write. Mm. So I could write in utero and in childhood, girlhood, what are the you know experiences of being a girl, puberty, um, the menstrual, there was a, there's a chapter on the menstrual cycle and, you know, the, the brain's control of the menstrual cycle, but also what happens at different phases during the cycle to your brain. And I, and, and I initially that was in the puberty chapter, but it was just got too big, so I got split into two. I look at adolescence. Um, I look at mental health because anxiety and depression is a topic that comes up throughout the lifespan. Um, I look at pregnancy, menopause. There's a bit of people have said, what happens in between? Is there any middle age stuff? And I was like, no, no, it's no great events. Just life happens. <laughs> Um, and, and then and then healthy aging and so it was just a, a, a wrote itself the chapter outline and the um, if anyone does have a copy of the book you'll see that the, the, the chapter outlines are extensive and detailed because um, basically they were just a list of questions that I wrote down that I didn't know the answers to well really. yeah it's and also I guess it calls on a lot of your research in the past on the brain and tying it specifically into women and and I mean has there been a lot of research 
done on these areas or some some areas was had surprising amounts of research and a lot of them had very very little and sometimes it was a complete um it was a real it was a real shock sometimes what there was and what there wasn't out there so i i, I had a pretty systematic approach to answering each question um the same approach that i would use researching any topic i don't really know the answers to and you know i'd, I'd kind of go to the, the, the textbook literature and then the review literature and then i'd identify some ex experts in the area and bring them up and talk to them or read a book or watch a TED talk of the given one and interview them and delve into more detailed research. So I had a very systematic approach to answering each question. Um, and sometimes there would be a ton of research. So um, there's actually an awful lot on HRT. There's an awful lot on healthy aging. There's a, a lot on pregnancy, um, believe it or not, and an awful lot on, on motherhood. But there were some things like the pill, how does the oral contraceptive pill impact our brains? There was, there's hardly anything. We've been taking the pill for about 50 years. Wow. And there's very, very little research looking at the, the, the kind of the, the neurobiology of the contraceptive pill, for example. That's um, which, is really, which is really kind of random. And there's a, there's a paper published that says something like 50 years of the pill, time to find out what it does to the brain. Um, you know, and, and that paper summarised sparse research. Um, often you would go, and, and sometimes it was just funny. And it was a really interesting time to be writing the book because I got the book contract from the day Donald Trump was elected. So that's always very memorable. Um, and I thought, I can do something. Um, gave me a, it was like, oh, I can save the world somehow. Uh, but then I was writing the book during 2017. And so when I'd written the chapter outline, there was no Me Too movement. There were no women's marches. There wasn't this, like, the rise of women. That happened while I was writing the book, which is a really interesting time to then be exploring the big gaps that there were in women's health research. And some things like, um, for example, thermoregulation was a really interesting one when I was um, looking into why do women get hot flashes when they go through menopause and, and, our, and our temperature is regulated by a region in our brain and the hormone, the, the kind of the, the dwindling hormones change the wiring of that part of the brain and that's why you get hot flashes. So I was kind of really interested in unpacking that. Yes. So but all of the research that was done historically on thermoregulation was done in men and it's mostly all been done in men because for a long, long time when the first studies were done, they didn't think women could actually sweat <laughs> because it was the men and you know women weren't allowed to run marathons it was not that long ago women couldn't run marathons because they didn't think our bodies would be able to cope our hearts could cope it's also that women couldn't sweat because we just stayed at home being cool calm and collected in the house men were the ones who went out and explored the world and ran races and fought wars and got all hot and sweaty but women didn't and we thought and it was thought we couldn't so it was thought the woman couldn't even sweat so a lot of studies of how our temperature was controlled weren't even done in women because we thought, well, there's no point because they don't need to know. They, they don't need to thermoregulate. So it's so interesting to unpack some of the um, the historical accidents, and none of it, and, and a lot of it's um, happenstance. It's not, you know, it wasn't. Um, there was no malicious intent behind why some of women's health hasn't been researched. It's just you know, these really interesting historical stories that I uncovered in there. Mm. Yeah, um, it's an exciting time, isn't it? Because it's, there's so much more that we've got to uncover, I guess. Mm. 
And, and mm. I guess what your book, your book is not about saying how women's brains are different from men's brains. Um, no. And actually it sounds like from your research, um, they're actually very similar, the brains themselves from men and women. Yeah. So what makes um, women have these different experiences and behave differently to men? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if you um, look at um, children and look at development during childhood, um, little boys and little girls are, are pretty pretty similar in terms of, you know, how they think and, and, and feel and behave. There are a few little differences that emerge when kids are pretty young in terms of who they choose to play with and the toys that they play with and how they play. But broadly, when you do most very carefully well-designed scientific examinations of perhaps say memory or verbal reasoning or all the kinds of tasks that scientists like to do in the lab to measure different aspects of, of psychology or intelligence. There's, there's never any differences. And if there are differences, the differences are, are typically tiny. And so in the book, I, I try and encourage people not to say, um, what is the difference, but to say, if there is a difference, how different is it? And typically, it's so small and there's, there's far more similarity than difference. It's all about overlaps between groups. And I kind of get into a little bit into how to understand that. Um, but what we, there was a, there's one study, I think, which kind of highlights um, when we do start to see differences between how girls and boys or men and women behave, that it can't be biological because of when it starts to emerge. So there was a study done looking at little girls and little boys in the classroom at ages sort of, five and six and then seven, eight and nine. And when, when they're like four, five and six, you um, read a story about a really smart and clever person. And then you say, oh, well, is that a boy or is that a girl? And all the boys will say it's a boy and all the girls will say it's a girl. At about five, six or seven, or you'll say, hey, there's a game over here for the smart kids. Who do you think should play it? And the girls say, oh, the girls should. And the boys say, oh, the boys should. When you get to ages sort of six, seven, eight, that little bit older, you say, oh, who's the smart person in the story? All the boys say, oh, it's the boy. And then all the girls say, it's the boy. Mm, wow. And then when you start saying, oh, well, who's, who plays the smart games? Who's really, who plays the, the, the smart kids' games in the classroom? All the boys say, oh, it's the boys. And all the girls say, it's the boys. So girls around the ages of six or seven start to change their thinking about who are the smart, clever, capable people in the room. They stop saying it's themselves and they start saying it's the boys. Now, there's no biological changes in the brain that happen between the ages of five, six, and seven that are different between boys and girls at all. Hormones haven't started. The, you know, the, the hormones of puberty, you've got another five years before they kick in, four or five years, easy. So people are learning these differences in the classroom and in families and, you know, it's learning it from each other. That's the nurture. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's not biological. We're, we're learning that. So a lot of the differences that we do see aren't necessarily coming about because biology is different. They're coming about because we are socialised in different ways. Mm. There's, there's some interesting work done looking at what, say, men and women may respond differently emotionally. There's some very interesting links between how we think and feel, but in particular our emotions, but also things like our perceptions, even things like colours, that are based very heavily on, in language. So baby girls are spoken to using a far greater range and variety of emotion words by their mothers than mothers speak to little boys. So little girls grow up with this huge range of emotion words to draw from to label their own feelings inside. And basically our 
emotions, we learn what emotions are. We learn to label feelings based on the language that we're given. And so little girls might be given lots and lots and lots of different kinds of words because they are spoken to using a wider variety of emotion words than little boys only get given if they're fewer. Now, yeah, whether sure we intend to do that or not. So little boys have a far narrower range of different emotions to label how they feel. And that impacts then how they interact with their own emotions and with the outside world. So that may get then, you know, neural pathways formed based on experience. It's not anything that's arisen by virtual biology. It's arisen by virtue of learning. There's even some really interesting stuff in different language, different um, you know, places around the world where different languages are spoken and different words are even used to um, describe different colours, different shades of blue. Uh, the more cut, the more words that are used to differentiate between colours, people can differentiate between those colours visually. Whereas if you've got a narrower range of words, people can't actually see the different colours. Mm. So we learn how to perceive what's around us and also inside ourselves based on what we get taught. Mm. And our brains are incredibly plastic and always growing. So it's not always boys are one way and girls are another because of our biology. It's way more complicated than that. And again, that's why I said it's not this nature, it's, you know, nurtures, it's so important as well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm hearing what you're saying. And then I think about many of us women who feel at the mercy of their hormones, yeah. um, <laughs> where we feel like, yeah, we're the same. And then suddenly it's almost mm. like we're not ourselves. And mm. how, do our, how are our minds and brains and behaviors shaped by our hormones? Yeah, that was one of the biggest um, sort of surprises when I was writing the book as well, was um, hormones do some really, really great things for us as well. And we tend to be very derisive and dismissive and talk about hormones like they're this kind of negative force in our lives. And, and I'd certainly say by writing the book, at the end of the book, I would say, they're one voice in the crowd. You know, they're just one voice in the crowd. But I was interested when I was... A, and I started writing the chapter on the menstrual cycle, I thought, well, that's going to be really interesting because if you're between puberty and, you know, menopause and you're not on the pill and you're not pregnant, then you're most probably naturally cycling every month, but a natural hormone cycle roughly every month. And so it's kind of like your own little neurobiology experiment. Um, well, certainly there was very little research that supported any influence over how our ovarian hormones influence our cognitive capacity so our ability to think or judge or remember or learn or plan or you know go to work and do your job and be a prime minister or you know whatever be a neuroscientist hormones don't really impact our thinking very much and i thought well surely they're going to impact our feelings because you know women are always complaining about how their hormones make them weepy well i personally have never really um not that way because I've not had that experience. My hormones haven't had any really a real impact on my emotions. But um, I thought, well, everyone else is always talking about it, so I'll go away and look at look at look at the research. So there's no said I'll look at PMS. The careful studies that have been done measuring specific things, measures of emotion in the lab, like um, empathy or um, emotional memory, were quite inconclusive about how. Um, you know, over the course of a month, your hormones would interact with your emotions. Very careful studies were kind of some, maybe in some women there's a bit of influence, but in lots of women there's not. And I was like, well, that's kind of 
inconclusive. I'll look at PMS. PMS, there'll be tons of stuff on PMS. Well, it turns out um, I couldn't find any good data on how many women suffer PMS in terms of the emotional or psychological effects. So there was one paper that looked at studies all over the world. It kind of pulled them all together into what we call a meta-analysis. And it concluded that the number of women um, reporting PMS symptoms range between 15 and 95%. And the 15% was in France and the 95% was in Iran and all the other countries were in the middle. And it varied widely by country and by culture and by society. So you've got like these outside influences on even something that you would think would be purely biological. Um, and then I talked to a, 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 a women's health psychiatrist in New Zealand called Sarah Romans, who's done a series of studies looking at this problem because she didn't think that as many women should be blaming their hormones for things going wrong as, you know, she just didn't, she just didn't kind of buy it. And so she designed a really careful study called the Mood and Daily Life Study that got women to chart every aspect of what was going on in their lives there you know, their mood, positive moods and negative moods, you're happy and energetic and upbeat and creative or, you know, grumpy or irritable or whatever. Um, social support, um, stress, stressful life events, um, physical health and day of cycle. But the study was, did not tell women that they were looking at PMS. So they weren't primed in any way. And when they analysed hundreds and hundreds of cycles from hundreds and hundreds of women, only about one in 20 women showed any really real clear evidence of a big emotional dip in that, pre, in that typical what we call premenstrual phase, which is very similar to the sort of stats that we see on women who suffer very severe, severe forms of PMS. Oh, um, no, that's bad news for all of us. Who well, I don't think it's bad news. I think it's really good news because it means that for many of us, We've been led to believe that hormones are making us emotional and when you and your expectations of your health are so incredibly important. Mm. And if you expect to feel a certain way, then you probably will feel that way. Mm. It's not to say you're not feeling that way, but if you're expecting to feel like that, you know, maybe maybe, maybe you should. And I said to I said to Sarah Romans, well, does that not dismiss many women's experiences? like real experiences or she said, I think we just need to be a little bit more skeptical and nuanced and not always default to hormones when things go wrong. Mm. Because when we go through pregnancy, we have sky high levels of estrogen and we tend to go, oh, my hormones of pregnancy, they're making me feel so bad. Well, estrogen is a cognitive enhancer. It improves mood. It makes you feel happy and good all of the studies that like look at what is the impact of estrogen that are done in animals who don't read books on what to expect and they're expecting um you know it only shows positive benefits it doesn't make you forgetful and weepy and sad and like docile which is what we may say we might feel during pregnancy if we feel that way it's not because of the estrogen <laughs> I love that. I think that's, yeah. yeah, it's such an interesting thing to, you know, pull out because so, like you yeah. say, so much as we feel a certain way because we're expected to feel a certain way. So it's a really... Absolutely. It's so powerful. And so, um, you know, people get very interested in talking about the placebo effect and, you know, what do we expect to happen when we take a certain drug? And, it, and, it's, and you know, we, there's a lot of talk about, for example, antidepressants, um, a, a large component of their positive effect in some people is the placebo effect. Therefore, if we could have a placebo that can make someone not go from a depressed state into a non-depressed state, 
then surely we can have a suggestion that you're going to be moody in the week before your period because you've been told that way and so therefore you are. So people are quite happy to think, oh, well, I can think myself better and well and healthy. Well, you can also think yourself the other way. Mm. And, it's, and it's really interesting. People have been quite resistant to that idea because it's almost like being told you feel that way because you decided you think you've thought yourself that way. Well, it's, you know, it's not victim blaming or it's not being derisive. It's just saying, well, just let's look at the biology and let's look at what we understand and perhaps this is just a different approach to take to your health. Mm. that's not to say that there aren't some people who are very, very susceptible to hormonal shifts because there are, but the majority, for the majority of women, perhaps we need to be looking at what else is causing perhaps a bad mood. Is it? And, and certainly in the mood and daily life study where the women weren't told it was about PMS, they were far more likely, the negative moods are far more likely to be influenced by stress, <laughs> What was whether it was in their head or whether it was, stress out in the world, lack of social support, or poor physical health. It wasn't their hormonal status. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. Mm. Just talking about stress, how, what does stress do to our brain? And when, what can well, we do about it? Yeah, well, I mean, there's, a little, there's, a, there's lots of ways to talk about stress. It's kind of a, one of these umbrella words that means a lot of things. So, you know, you can have imagined stress, you know, the stress that you kind of create in your own mind in the middle of the night about something that hasn't even happened. We're the only creatures on earth that can make ourselves physically ill. I wrote imagining something that isn't, has may never even happen. Um, so you, or it can be an, a, a real ex, you know, external experience. You know, my, I'm from Christchurch, so my family went through all the Christchurch earthquakes. So that's an external stressful event that you don't have a lot of control over. Um, it could be, you know, stress can be short and acute, like, you know, you're in an earthquake or it could be perhaps a long-term chronic, you know, dealing with a family member who's perhaps unwell or something. Um, the, big, the big thing is stressful events and things happen. What's, what's important is it's things make us feel stressed if we perceive that what is happening exceeds our ability to cope. Mm. And so, you know, something may happen that, you know, it totally stresses one person out and has them falling about in pieces, crying, and someone else is like, look, oh, it's fine, I don't know what you're worried about, this is not a stressful thing at all. And it's really about how, how well you perceive your ability to cope. And so what are the kind of support networks, buffers that you can put in, in place to help you manage stress so it doesn't get in under your skin? And that's the, all the usual ones that you would have heard about. That's, you know, having good social support is the main one. Um, you know, making sure you're fit and healthy and well slept and, and all of those sorts of things. But definitely it's stress can get in under our skin if we, we, we feel that we can't cope. We, have, we don't have the kind of the capacity to deal with it. Um, and, and when it does get in under our skin, you know, there's short-term and there's long-term effects which act via different neural pathways and different hormonal pathways. A little bit of stress isn't necessarily bad. I think if you didn't have, you know, a little bit of stress, you wouldn't, you know, turn up to have a podcast conversation on time or get your kids from school on time. Um, You know, so a little bit of stress, a little bit of neural tension, you know, kind of aids performance and learning. It's when it exceeds your ability to, to cope with it that, you know, can impede you short term. You know, you, you lose concentration or you fall apart or long-term it can lead to depression and, and, the, and the, or, you know, all kinds of, of, of long-term issues and even like physical issues with your health. 
Um, there's lots of different pathways that it, that it interacts, but I think the important thing to realise is that, um, you know, it's about putting the systems in place that will help you buffer it mm. when, if and when it does occur. Yes. And um, just talking about stress now I'd like to just skip over to you know feeling happy and I know mm. that's something that you talk about in your book is the neuroscience of happiness what have been yeah. your findings in this area like what yeah. Look, I always happier? so I painted myself into a bit of a corner with just my love of alliteration with health hormones and happiness I guess I was, was I was talking about emotions and, and health and hormones and emotions happiness is a real curly problem because neuroscientists have typically whenever we've studied emotions and you see this even with these mood and daily life studies or talking about hormones and emotions everyone defaults to only talking about the negative feeling sad or depressed or cranky and nobody ever talks about the positive emotions and you know we have a huge valence of negative emotions and not necessarily very many positive ones and it's also very hard for neuroscientists for many years to study positive emotions because we have a real tendency to like to study the little scurrying animals of the lab and, you know, it's pretty easy to study a scared rat or an anxious rat, but a happy rat or a happy lab mouse. I mean, you know, what's, what's, what's it doing? What is happiness to a mouse? And how can we kind of look at the neural pathways in a mouse? So that was, um, that's, that is, that's kind of a problem in its own right within science. It's very hard to understand what makes us happy, what makes us feel good. Um, when we do study it, if you want to kind of unpack it in neural terms, a lot of it is around, you know, what kind of makes you feel good and what's rewarding and what do you want, and what do you like and what are you kind of moving towards? And a lot of that comes down to things like what, you know, kind of what, made, what motivates you, what makes you feel good. We understand a little bit of the neurobiology behind that. I like this idea of, um, and I talk about it in the last chapter of the book where I'm kind of talking about the kind of the positive um, um, things that we can do. One is one is around sort of playing to your strengths, and the other is around and really closely related to that is this idea of purpose and passion. And um, I can't remember who it was. I heard someone say it's about what what makes the the tail of your soul wag. That's quite a nice term. Um, and I talk about it in the book. There's a researcher I, I do often do these kind of STEM careers days with called Paul Bulldog, who's a bone researcher. And he says everything for him boils down to, is it awesome and does it help? And that's his recipe for making almost every decision in life. So is it awesome? Is it something that's just fun that he can kind of wallow and marinate in the enjoyment of, like writing about neuroscience? And does it help? Because it's all very well doing something that's enjoyable, but unless you're kind of putting it out into the world and, 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 and it's being received, you're not really on purpose. Mm. And that, to me, is the kind of the recipe for, um, you know, what makes me happy is being on purpose and doing things that I find really fulfilling and play to my strengths. Um, so I love, love that. Learning is, yeah, love of learning is kind of one of my key strengths. You know, you go to all these strengths finders. But, but unless I'm teaching what I've learned, it's not, I'm not kind of putting it out into the world. So I, I just, that's kind of my little recipe is, is it awesome and does it help? And if it ticks both those boxes, then generally it makes me feel happy. I love that because, you know, obviously so much about what this podcast is about is living with purpose and, mm. you know, a big part of that is finding what makes you happy, but how you serve others by doing that. And yeah, yeah. A lot of what so you important. Do, 
yeah, a lot of mm. what you do is learn, but you share what you've learned, yeah. which is the, yeah. the service part. So yeah, I love that, that um, yeah. ha having a purpose is good for your brain. Yeah, well, it's really interesting because you can actually quantify purpose in life, which I was really surprised about the first time I found it. And you can go into like nursing homes or aged care facilities and you can do surveys of people and, uh, and you can find, and you can kind of quantify how on their purpose in life, whether they felt like their life had purpose and whether they felt, you know, engaged and, and what they did was worthwhile and whether they felt, you know, they, they had a life lived that way. And people who have a higher sense of purpose and score higher on that purpose scale, purpose in life scale, typically have lower rates of depression and they also have lower rates of dementia. And we're really just beginning to unpack um, that relationship. I was at a conference about two weeks ago called Living to 100, which was um, kind of a, all this, the people, the studies in the world that look at centenarians, or so people who reach ages 100 and more. And, and the, the head of the Sydney Brain Bank was there, um, who, who I know reasonably well. And she said to me, oh, look, I don't think we really, people really understand. We're only just understanding how important mental health is for healthy brain aging and they're so intimately connected and so you might think well how does purpose in life help protect your brain against dementia um it doesn't protect it but it lowers it lowers the risk but we don't really understand the neurobiology of that yet but but they're definitely you know they're definitely related and there's definitely a, a, a correlation if there's not a direct cause there's a strong correlation between having your life's purpose it's probably all around things like stress reduction and connection you know, yeah you're going to feel less stressed you're going to be reaching the people who are going to make you feel loved and wanted and all of those are protective factors for health it's all all, all, all interrelated but I'm, I'm i'll be really um, curious to see how that research plays out over the next you know decade so will I. It's so fascinating. Yeah. And what I find is a lot of the things that often get in the way of us living our purpose or, you know, serving in a certain way is our own mindset and mm. thought patterns and beliefs that we yeah. have about ourselves. And I know that you're, yeah. you know, you've spoken and written a lot in this area about neuroplasticity mm. and how mm. we can change our thoughts. Is there can you yeah. share a little bit on that? Well, I think our brains like to, well, our brains need to be reminded that they're needed. It's like a, a muscle in your body, or um, and and the more experiences, the more experiences we have, the more likely we are to, for um, and in terms of something like a thought or a feeling or a behaviour, the, the the more likely that's going to happen to us in the future. So the more positive emotional experiences you have, the more likely you are to have positive emotional experiences going forward so first of all we need to learn to wallow in and appreciate and marinate in the good things that happen and um you know when when you when you've achieved something you've reached a goal or you've you know just had some good thing happen or just you have had a happy day we need to really learn to wallow in that you know some people might say practice gratitude or you know hashtag blessed or write in the gratitude diary or post it on Instagram or, or, or whatever. But I think all of that's a really good positive way to affirm our um, affirm positive emotions associated with experiences. And the more we do that, the more um, positive emotions we'll have around the, the experiences and the thoughts and the feelings that we have. So that's kind of the first step is to make yourself feel good when this stuff happens. Um, the whole mindset thing and in terms of, you know, holding yourself back and, perhaps feeling like an imposter or being too scared to speak up or speak out. I mean, every, I, I have that all the time still. 
um, I don't think that that ever goes away. And I think um, it's really important that people realise, and I've like given TED Talks and do all kinds of stuff. And yeah. I still sometimes think, oh God, you know, who am I? What am I? I mean, what am I doing? Why did they invite me? Um, and, and what will they think? And I think that's quite normal. And they have that all the time. And I always remember hearing something Barack Obama said about that. And I, I often think, what would Jacinda do? <laughs> what would she? What would Jacinda say? <laughs> um, so you know, I, I just try and be influenced by, you know, other people who are also speaking up and out and living on purpose or whatever and um and know that we all we've all got that little bit inside we were kind of like oh god what would they say but um sometimes that i just get a bit tired of feeling like that as well mm. <laughs> like god men don't think that way <laughs> you know those little six-year-old boys they're all the ones saying the boys are smart enough to do that and it's the girls that are not so you know if the little girls at seven and eight are pointing to the boys being smart maybe it's time that those of us who are 43 stop doing that too and and you know sort of t throw that off a bit um I don't, I, I don't think there's any easy answer to that mm. um, it's continual kind of you know patting yourself on the back each day yes um, but I do get it I do get I still I mean I've still got role models out there that I kind of look towards and um aspire to be like and try and learn from and I think that's um you know, important. And then, you know, if all else fails, I know my kids and my husband and my dogs and I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> a lot more. I, I think Especially there's a the lot dog. Of <laughs> I've seen the dog, but I think there is a lot of people who think you're great. Um, one, I mean, just talking about that TED Talk, one thing I loved that I've heard you speak about is um, the power of napping. Oh, yes. um, and I know how much you love to have a nap yes, and there's actually you know scientific research around why we should nap can you share a little bit about that yeah well i think there's research around if you feel like napping then you should and there are certain ways to do it to make it beneficial because not everyone feels the urge to nap or perhaps you feel the urge to nap and you're driving a cut or maybe if you're driving your car you should pull over or you know perhaps you're a teacher at school you can't exactly pop your head down and have a nap in the middle of the afternoon in the classroom um, I'm very fortunate in that I have my own business, so I have engineered my life to enable that. But um, I have given a TED talk on that. Um, and, and I talked about three pieces of research that how napping can benefit your brain, brain health, and one in terms of memory consolidation. And we know that memories get consolidated during sleep. Um, that's, there's absolutely no you know, mystery around that anymore. So you'll have a better memory of what you've learned earlier in the day if you have a short nap. Um, it smooths your emotions out. So I always say it gives me a second day. A mate has always made me a much nicer mother. I just, I don't feel as emotionally frayed if I'm trying, if I've had a short nap and I'm not fighting off that sleepy feeling. And, um, and there's plenty of research around it can give people creative insights. And I don't really use it for that. I just use it because I get sleepy in the middle of the afternoon and I hate fighting off that feeling. I, I used to, all the way through uni and when I was working in the lab, I used to go and have to find somewhere to kind of sneak away and hide and sleep and feel it was this like guilty little secret. Um, and everyone's going on about meditating these days and how wonderful that is. And I'm like, well, I'd just rather be asleep. <laughs> and, and I find that very easy. Um, the, 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 the trick with it is if you do decide to indulge that urge is to not sleep for longer than half an hour. 
Okay. Because um, if you do, you go into deep sleep and then that disrupts all of your sleep cycles for that night. But if you have a short nap of less than half an hour, um, then you then you it doesn't disrupt your night's sleep and you get you get the benefits without the the, the risk. Mm. Um, and it's interesting because I often talk to people who nap, or I'll be at a conference and someone will come up and they go, oh, "I'm a nap. I, I regularly nap." And I, last conference I spoke about it, that a guy came up to me. He's a real estate agent and he has a mattress in his office. And everyone jokes about how he, and he says, oh, of course I have my nap. He's like, I love it. And I said, how long do you nap for? He says, oh, about half an hour. And I ask every single one of them, I say, do you, how do you sleep at night? Are you a sleeper at night? Every single person who strategically and regularly naps always sleeps really well at night. And he's like, like a log. Most people who are strategic nappers um, are not napping because they're sick, but are napping strategically like I do, sleep really well at night. And I think that's because we have really good, strong, positive sleep associations. We love sleep. So going to bed at night, it's like, oh, I get to like nap for eight hours. Um, I love going to bed and going to sleep. And I, and I also have a, have a quick nap and it just, I just find that it just makes my life so much better. That's so great. I love, I love the positive association. So are there yes. any other practices that you personally do to stay in alignment and to maybe just stay to keep your brain functioning well? Obviously, um, sleep is a really important one. Sleep is absolutely, and I go to bed really early. Um, I now go to bed around, my husband's not wanting to, you know, have a chat or something. I'll, I go to bed pretty early, like nine, I'm in bed by nine. 30 at the latest unless I'm going out or something which doesn't happen very often during the week um, and I get up when I'm working and I've got stuff that's really requires like writing a book or whatever I'll get up really early I'll get up at 4 30 or 5 um, and I find that time of the day for me works works best I've had a really good night's sleep it's quiet I have a good strong coffee there's plenty of evidence around all the benefits of coffee um, and then that's my kind of best time of the day. Um, and, I, and I used to do all kinds of CrossFit and pump and all of this. And now I've quit the gym and I walk my dog or I swim in the ocean. Um, and I just did a, my, I've got a book club and we walk a few times a week um, together. So we're talking about our books and walking together. Um, and I just try and keep that, kind of connection with nature quite simple so you know trying to follow the light dark cycle go to bed early get up really early um get outside and just and and, and walk and walk and swim swim in nature and then you know when i got to the end of writing this book um when you write a book you spend an awful lot of time by yourself sitting down um very it's very insular and it's not very, it's not the best recipe for brain health so I thought, well, I have to do something um, that's the opposite of writing a book because I'm, and I was, you know, by the end of it, I was drinking way too much wine. I was drinking, I was having heart palpitations. I, you know, my, my physically I was, mentally I was all right, but physically I was really, you know, I was not, you know, I was unhealthy, but I could, that there was a few little alarm bells and I thought, right, well, I've got to give up booze for a while, cut down on the coffee, exercise more, move my body. And I thought, well, I need to also do something with people. And so I joined a local amateur dramatics group here in my suburb and I can't sing and I can't dance. And I went to the audition and I said, can't sing, can't dance, just really want to be involved. <laughs> and um, so I was given a speaking role and I did the curtains and I was in a couple of the dance ensembles and I mouthed the words and 
loved it. And it's like full. And it was really interesting to me. It was a group of people I didn't really know very well. We were all working towards this common goal and we were fundraising money for the primary school. It was hilarious. And it was so interesting how many people uh, in theatre um, have mental health problems because, and it's not because they want to be seen on stage or even because I think they get to, maybe partly they get to put on a different persona and be someone completely different. And there's really interesting evidence around that type of way of approaching mental health problems, being someone, you know, kind of acting, you know, um, fake it till you make it kind of thing. But um, also just that collective group dynamics, that like everyone's kind of on purpose towards one goal and it's very positive and it's very energetic. And I think um, that uh, it was a real insight into what different people seek out for different reasons. But that was, yes, that was my other, like I've got to practice what I preach. Mm. So I feel like I could actually ask you a thousand questions about the brain because you are just such a wealth of knowledge. But I know that you do have this neuroscience academy, yeah. which is so fascinating and um you know something that i'm really interested in so that mm-hmm. people who are interested in the brain um mm-hmm. can really delve deep can you share a little bit mm-hmm. about this because i know you've got um the academy opening very soon isn't it yep yep so the first day of lessons is the first of october so the enrollment's open right now um so it's a 10-week online program in applied neuroscience and brain health so we have eight modules that we do over 10 weeks. So there's a couple of gaps in there because that's neuroscience-inspired breaks in your learning. And we, we sort of start off with basic foundations of brain anatomy, brain physiology, how do we think, how do we feel, how do we motivate behaviour change, neuroplasticity. That's kind of the first broad part of the course. And the second, we look at various aspects and detail of um, brain health and lifestyle. So we look at sleep and we look at nutrition, gut brain health, mindfulness, stress, social connection. A lot of these ideas that we've talked about, we talk about flow, we talk about mental visual, visualization, a lot of the things that we've touched on through this conversation. Um, each lesson contains some theory. So you might learn about basic brain anatomy, and then you might learn some applied tools, ways that you could explore brain anatomy further or perhaps teach brain anatomy to someone else or um, brain anatomy is probably not the best idea. So, so theory, we could look at, talk at the theory of how mental rehearsal and mental imagery is the same to the brain as doing the actual physical act. So we'll look at the theory of that and then we'll do some practical activities around creating a mental rehearsal script and what are you going to go away and rehearse and go away and do it for a week and then come back to the group and report how that went. So we cover off theory and then there's a lot of applied um, practical activities to kind of embed a lot of these ideas. It's basically designed for professionals. I, the umbrella is like helping professionals. So people who are going to be using this work with the people that they work with, whether they be teachers or psychologists or therapists or coaches or perhaps trainers, corporate trainers. Um, we have all kinds of people from lots of different professions, um, all who are wanting to enhance their, their kind of their professional development with, mm. um, with the neuroscience. Yeah, so it's open, it's great global community of people. We've, had about, we've got about 650 people have gone through the program so far. I think we've had about 50 people sign up in the last couple of days for the next cohort. We have live um, interactive coaching calls on Zoom, like what we're on now, 
and there's a fa private Facebook group, lots of time for Q&A with me, lots of opportunities for people to form, um, you know, kind of partnerships or study groups or whatnot with other people as well. So mm -hmm. the, um, the, the social, the community side of it has been really, really useful as well. People get a certificate at the end. Um, yes, yeah, you're accredited, aren't you? It's, it's like yeah, it's accredited, yep. Um, yes, the people, yes, the people, you can set a, a test at the end, a quiz, far less threatening than it sounds. <laughs> and, um, and then people get a certificate and most people use that to go away and claim, um, you get 20 professional development hours from their various societies or colleges or associations. Mm -hmm. um, it's recognised with most, most places. Fantastic. Um, yeah, so it's just, and I just basically get to do what I love most, which is teach neuroscience, and little short, small, bite-sized pieces and provide people with resources and support so they can get these, these ideas from neuroscience and start using them in a really smart way. <laughs> I love that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to put the link to the course in the show notes and I'm going to put your book in there as well. And I highly recommend you also follow Sarah's blog and I'll pop that there because it's always just full of lots of good juicy information about it makes me sound very busy. Don't <laughs> <laughs> smoke and mirrors. I'm not really. <laughs> Uh, I don't, yeah, there's obviously some good productivity flow time coming out from your end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's all done but, at 4 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> any other words of wisdom or um, closing words just on what we can do for our mind or brain or mental health? I, you know, we, we're creatures that evolved on this planet that goes around the sun and always spins on its axis. And we need to just remember that, that I think we've lost connection. The planet's telling us that too, isn't it? It's kind of fighting back a bit right now. And, and we've lost that connection that, that we've forgotten that we're part of the natural world. And, and I think that that's perhaps one of the best places to start is, is to get back to basics in terms of, you know, sleep and the food we eat and how we move through the world and, and put those basics in and connect with those communities in which we live. And that's perhaps where I would begin if I had to mm, had to start somewhere. Beautiful. Just peeling it all back to, to mm. what we're here for. Hmm. Lovely. Thank you so much, Sarah, for your time. It's just been such a, a pleasure and you're just such a wealth of knowledge that is um, so nice to, to share with, with these followers. So thank you. Oh, thank you for inviting me. And thanks to everyone. Hope they're still listening for giving up time to listen to me <laughs> prattle away. It's yeah. nice to speak to another Kiwi too. Yay. <laughs> thanks, Sarah.